Well, as already has been mentioned, we're beginning today a series through the book of Ruth, making our way up toward uh, Lent. We'll take the time to think through Ruth together, a beautiful, familiar story to most of us, a beautifully crafted story in the scriptures, um, just wonderfully written and woven through with irony, with prophecy, with uh, foreshadowing, with types of Christ. It's just so rich in so many ways, this wonderful book of Ruth. And today, as we've already mentioned, we're just taking and beginning the book with an intro by considering verses 1 through 5, which, all things considered, is a, pl- a pretty bleak um, uh, passage. It is not the most encouraging passage. There's not a lot to smile about in Ruth 1, 1 through 5. But that is the text that we are taking up today, and this will set the tone for us as we make our way through the book, a book which you know is a book that celebrates and rejoices in God's sovereign providence, the care that he has for his people, and the mysteries of his providence, the means by which he brings about his appointed ends, um, are, are, as I often say, I, for some reason I use math as the uh, as my 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 metaphor here, or I guess, or whatever analogy, that we can't do the calculus. You know, I can't. I we God's providence is inscrutable. Uh, it's it's one of those things where you can't always draw the straight line between points. Um, very hard to to calculate, and and we and therefore it requires of us uh, a, a a measuredness, a a a real care when we begin interpreting providence. And I, I find myself uh, uh, guilty of this sometimes, of reading things that are happening as God's approval or his disapproval of something or seeing what God is doing in something, taking something as a sign that God is, God is with me in this decision. Uh, very tricky to, to navigate that. We should be cautious about that. And, uh, and the book of Ruth, I think, uh, chastens us on this reminds us of the inscrutable mysteries of his uh, providence, for we know, we know the end of this book. And uh, so I'm, 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 I don't want to give too many spoiler alerts here, but, uh, but we know that, it, that Ruth uh, is the line through which we have Jesus Christ. Um, and Ruth, as we will be introduced to her here, is a Moabite woman, a woman who marries one of Naomi's sons in a very ill-advised move. If, if, if we were there, if we could just be there as counselors, we would have advised strongly against any of this. And yet, we know how the story ends. It ends back in Bethlehem uh, with, a, with the Christ child being born. And, uh, and in, in some part, it's thanks to God's work through Ruth. So, so these things are going to present us with challenges and, again, the inscrutable realities of God's providence. Well, I want us to look at this text. It's already been read. The first chapter has already been read, and we're looking at just verses 1 through 5. And I want us to think about three things here. I want us to think about the context of this story. It's given to us in the first verse, and this, there's so much said just even in the first part of the, the, the verse that helps us understand the moment we're in. And, and the author of the book of Ruth is, is telling us a lot in such a compressed way, a beautiful way, 
uh, that, that to help us understand the nature of this story. So I want us to think about the context of this, and I want to think us to think about the very unwise decision that we see uh, in Elimelech, and then we want to deal with what I'll, I'll call the bitter providence of God, uh, since Naomi uses that word. Please don't call me Naomi, she says when she returns. We'll look at that next week. Please don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Uh, so we'll consider the bitter providence that uh, Naomi in particular has to deal with. So let's think first about the context of this. And right here in the in the very beginning of the of the book, in the first sentence, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. So we know that when we're dealing with this story of Ruth, we are in the period of the judges, and hence it comes right after the book of Judges. And so, again, so much is given to us there. We can think, we should, we should. Zoom out for a second and think, okay, the time of the judges, what time was that? Well, we know it's not a, a little window of time. It's a, it's, a, it's a larger period of time, but it's very important for us to understand some things about this period of the judges. What was this period? Well, first, it was a period, you will remember, after the conquest of the land with Joshua, right? So it is, they, they are now dwelling in the Holy Land. You'll remember the people of God were in Egypt. They come out by the Exodus. The people are unfaithful. They wander until they're all, that generation's dead. And then the next generation is allowed to come in under Joshua. And they didn't come in the first time because the people doubted whether God could do it. They chose, let's go back. Let, let, let's go back to Egypt instead of going and face these giants. And, and Joshua and Caleb said, no, we ought to go. And the Lord then wiped out that whole generation, except for Joshua and Caleb. They were allowed to go in. And Joshua will now lead them into the Holy Land. Now, as they were going into the Holy Land, you'll remember that Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, giving the people their instructions, giving them the law, nomi, a second time, Deutero. All right, Deuteronomy, the second law. He gave the second law. He gave the law again to the people of God and reminded them of what God had told their fathers as they were getting ready to enter the land. And of course, he expands on it. And he reminds them, as you go in this land, you are going into a unique place. You are entering into a unique time. That is, the land you're about to enter, the land of Canaan, is not just another land. It's not just going to be another nation among the nations. This is going to be God's holy land. You're going to enter into this land, and therefore, you are going to purge the land. Joshua was called to go into that land and purge the land of the Canaanites, literally, to obliterate them, to purge the land of that which is unclean, now that the sin of the Amorites is full, cleanse the land, and this land is going to be a sanctuary on the earth. This, is, this land is going to be like a holy of holies. This is going to be a land where holiness reigns. Sin will not be tolerated. That is, idolaters will be cast out, and you Israelites who sin, we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it by the way that the law tells us to deal with our sin because we're not going to tolerate sinfulness here. We're not going to tolerate that which is unclean. It's going to require a measure of purity. And the Lord tells them through, through uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, in this land, if you obey, there will be blessings. And if you disobey, there will be curses. 
That's the way it's going to work in this land. Now, it's important for us to understand that that period of time in the Holy Land is a unique period of time in the history of redemption. Okay, That land, that time in the Holy Land of what will become the theocracy of God ruling over them as a people was a very unique time within the history of the world. And therefore, we have to be careful when we take the rules that apply to that land in that time and bring them out and apply them, let's say, to us because we are not in the Holy Land that way. We are not in a theocracy in the way that God had established it within the Holy Land. But this little window of time and this postage stamp of land was to be a model of the kingdom of God. This was to be a picture, if you will, on earth of heaven. And it will be a place where the name of the Lord is magnified and the temple is established and holiness reigns and that's what it was supposed to be. Now to do this, go in and purge the land. Cleanse the sanctuary, if you will. So all these things apply. It's very important for us to understand that because when they come into the land, we know they don't do it. Right off the bat, they fail to purge the land. They do it kind of. They do it in some cities. They divide the land, but they don't go all the way and push the the enemies out. And therefore, the Lord says, okay, fine. I'm going to leave the Philistines to be a thorn in your side then. And you're going to suffer because you were disobedient already right from the start. You are not managing the sanctuary the way God has commanded you to manage the sanctuary. And so we go through Joshua, and we come into the period of Judges. And in the period of the Judges, now Israel has already been unfaithful in the land, but they're trying to live in the land. We see now just these cycles of obedience, disobedience, consequences, crying out to the Lord, you know, the Lord having mercy upon them, and them then taking that for granted and spiraling back into sin again. If you know anything about the book of Judges, it follows this pattern. Israel was unfaithful. They began to to fall away from the Lord, not honor the Lord, maybe even worship the gods of other nations. The Lord would then bring judgment upon them. The people then cried out for mercy, and the Lord would send a deliverer. He'd send a judge. Judge not necessarily like we think of, you know, with the gavel and the, you know, you know, uh, order, order, that, not that kind of judge but a judge who would come in and judge on behalf of the people with a sword. He would come in and defend his people, cleanse out the enemy, restore peace and order, and the Lord would bless it, and there would be a period of 20 years, 30 years of peace and order established. And then things would spiral again. That judge would die. The effects would begin to wear off. The people would forget, as we've already said this morning, our hearts are prone to wander and the hearts of the people would wander. That would bring judgment upon them then. The people would then eventually cry out to the Lord. Again, we look to the Lord as a last resort, sadly. And the Lord, who is rich in mercy, sends another judge, delivers them, and there's 30 years of peace. And then that judge dies. The peace fades away. The people's hearts wander, and here we go again. And this is the cycle of the judges. And the book of Judges ends as it comes toward its end a couple times at the end when that cycle of judges kind of wears off then we're told and there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes just complete disaster things fall apart and the book of judges is leaving us with a 
uh, a, a hint of what is needed here. What is needed is a king, and there is no king. And without the king, everyone's just doing right within their own eyes. And this is a hint of what is to come. Now, on the heels of that, the story of Ruth. And so we're told that this story is happening in the days when the judges ruled. So we know already the context is already set. That's all that needs to be said for us to get some sense. This is not one of the golden ages of Israel, right? This, this is not when things are just flying high and everything's going well. This is a time of cyclical disobedience, a time of cyclical judgment by the hand of God, a time of cyclical deliverance. But Israel is being taught some hard lessons here in this period of time. And it is in this time and in this land where uniquely this is happening, right? These cycles of judgment coming by the hand of God is happening uniquely within this sanctuary because it is the holy land that this story is framed and we have the context of it. So first thing, we're in the days of the judges. Tells us a lot. And then secondly, and this now even zooms us in a little tighter to the moment we're in, because we're told it was in the days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. Now, when there's a famine, when there's a famine in the world, it's good to find out why, oh, well, you know, oh, La Ninas or El Ninos, I don't know which one kind of brings the, the dryness. You know, maybe it's that, maybe the weather cycle, maybe it's sunspot. I don't know what it could be. But when there's a famine in the Holy Land, do not look to meteorological problems. Don't look to climate problems. Don't look to sunspots. When there's a famine in the Holy Land, then you look to the Holy God. It is not coincidental when there's a famine in this land. Now, you hear about a famine in Egypt, who knows what's going on down there? But when there's a and now everything's under the providence of God. But when there's a famine in the Holy Land, during the time of the judges, you know it is by the hand of God. And you know that it is an act of judgment. That here we are in one of these cycles, and we know just from that little phrase where we are in this cycle. This is not a coincidental thing. Israel is in a point of rebellion against God. And in these cycles of the judges, we are at a point in which the Lord is laying his hand heavy upon Israel. This is very important because then we think, well, what would you do about it then? If you were living in Egypt and there was a famine, you might have some strategies on how to deal with it. If you're in the Holy Land and there's a famine, what ought your strategy to be? Well, I can tell you this. Your first thought should not be about food. Your first thought should be repentance because the famine here tells us something is not right between us and God. Now, again, please, this is why I set this frame at the very beginning of this Sermon, we have to apply this out to us, but we have to do it very carefully because we are not in the Holy Land now, okay? The Holy Land at this time is a unique time within the history of the world. And the, the calculus of the Holy Land is different than it is between, let's say, God in America or God in, in wherever, Germany, God in anywhere. The Holy Land was a unique time within the history of the world. But within this calculus, we learn something. We know that where there's disobedience, Famine comes because that's what God said he was going to do. And so here it is. Famine has come to this land. 
And in this land, there was a family. There was a woman named Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two boys. And it's interesting, and here's where just the, the beautiful way in which Ruth is written starts right and so much is in this beautiful first verse of the book. We learn so much. It's so wonderfully dense in just the way that the author frames things. And here we get one of the beautiful ironies of the book right off the bat. It came to pass in the days of the, when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem means house of bread. So we've got a man living in the house of bread who's dealing with a famine. There's a real problem here. There's a problem when the house of bread has no bread. And this little family story of living in the house of bread with no bread because they literally live in a town called house of bread, of course, is a picture of the whole land is a house of bread. The whole land is the holy land. This is a, a land of God's abundant provision for his people. And wow, it's bad when the whole house of bread, the bread basket is completely barren and empty. But that's the lot of this family. And it's really, frankly, the lot of all of Israel at this time. And don't forget, by the way, Bethlehem is that promised city of the king. We've got all kinds of problems going on here. We've got this family in Bethlehem, the house of bread, but there's no bread. It's the land of the promised king, but there's no king. And by the way, the name of our guy, the name of our main character here thus far is Elimelech, and his name means my God is king. My God is king. And we just come off of the book of Judges, and Judges tells us, and there's no king in the land. Well, we'll find out whether or not Elimelech acts like there's a king in this land or not. little hint, he doesn't, all right? Now, let's go. So the first point is the context of this thing. And so we see it now. Day of the judges in the Holy Land, time of famine in the house of bread with no bread. Now, let's consider, secondly, the very unwise decision of this man. Our God is king. My God is king. Because, again, as we've said, how do you handle it? If you are in the Holy Land and it's a time of famine, what ought you to do? Well, let's see what he does. The name of the man was Elimelech. My God is king. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Now that right there throws us off a little bit because what kind of names are those? You ever hear those anywhere else in the Bible? These are not your typical Hebrew names. So it seems as if already our guy, my God is king, Elimelech, has already got his mind on other things. He seems to have named his children Canaanite names. He's living in the Holy Land. He's living there as the people of God in a land that is to be to God alone. He's already seemed to have taken on uh, uh, Canaanite names for his children. So just I think that's, that's there for us as a little indicator that our, our, our main character thus far, we'll find out he's not the main character of the story, but thus far the head of the family is already not where he ought to be uh, there in the land. So anyway, Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They went to the country of Moab and they remained there. Okay, so how does, how does our character Elimelech deal with this problem? He decides his, his judgment, and again, part of us can identify if, we, if we're, we gotta be careful when we deal with these cartoonish 
images in the Old Testament. I say cartoonish only because they're just big and bold stories in which we can kind of see the unwise decisions of people. You know, Israel saying, I want to go back to slavery. It's so ridiculous. You know, so it's it's in big, bold colors to describe what the nature of our hearts is. And here we have an amazing kind of big, bold story as well. But But we need to humble ourselves and think, put ourselves in the shoes of this man, right? He's got a family. He's got a wife. He's got two boys. Age-wise, kind of tough. They're unmarried. So what are we looking at here? We're probably looking at teenage boys. Okay, so he's got a couple young teenage boys and a wife to care for and a famine in the land. What do you do? And he thinks, well, I think there's bread down there in Moab. So I'm going to head over there and see if I can take care of my family and provide better, I guess, that I go there and be, be able to provide my family than kind of scrap it out here where it seems like my, my you know, things aren't going to end anytime soon. We can maybe identify with that. Maybe maybe we read this and we if we were just reading on our own, we wouldn't even think that's a problem. It's like, yeah, what else? We would do it. We would leave. If there was a famine here. And we're starving. We we had where I don't know. Is there bread up in Canada? Fine, we'll go live in Canada or down in Mexico. Fine, we got to go live in Mexico if that's what it takes. But remember, we're not in America. We're in the Holy Land. We're in the Holy Land where famine is meant to do something to you. It's not make it. Famine does not come into the Holy Land to encourage you to go find resources among the pagans. That's not why the famine comes. The famine comes that you might be on your knees. And repent because something is wrong between us and God. And Elimelech doesn't read it that way. Elimelech reads it as, again, it's just an economic problem. And so I've got to head out to where there are more economic possibilities. I've got to flee to where I can provide for my family. And so here, in this time of the judges, when there is no king and everyone does what is right in his own eyes, we meet a guy whose name is, my God is king, which is the perfect answer to the book of Judges. Yes, there is a king in the land. It's God. And we ought to listen to him. And so a guy here whose very name is, my God is king. I'm right on the heels of the book of Judges. And there was no king in the land. And the next thing we read is about a guy who says, my God is king. And then what does he do? He does what's right in his own eyes. He does what's right in his own eyes. Any consulting of the Lord here? Any any going to the Lord at least we're not told by the author of the book who's careful to describe this thing. No no turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, guide me, and the Lord guides him out to the Moabites. No, this is a man who does what's right in his own eyes without seeking the will of the Lord. I was just talking to my brother Stephen the other day, and it's funny because he brought very similar he, he was wrestling, he's reading through Jeremiah, he's reading how the Israelites, when they were finally, when, when the Babylonians came to mess with them and started putting the pressure on them, again, which even at that time, now we're talking much later than the time of Ruth, now we're talking in the late days of the kings when Israel had prophet after prophet after prophet coming and telling them that the Lord was going to send these armies against them and that was going to be his judgment if you don't repent and then finally the Babylonians threatened to come and what do the Israelites do? They go to Egypt and they try to make a deal and say, hey, listen, if the, Canaan, if the, if the Babylonians come, will you protect us? 
And the Lord says, oh, you, you're making deals. <laughs> you need protection? And your thought was, let's go to the Egyptians and get an alliance there? That was your, that's what you thought you ought to do? When, when these oncoming armies are my hand of judgment? Your first thought is, let me get some security here? And, and Stephen was wrestling with what that meant in times we're in. Now, again, we have to be very careful. We can't go one for one because we're not in the Holy Land. But there's application here. But just thinking how quickly when we find ourselves in times of trouble, we quickly rely on our own resources. Okay, what do I got to do to make sure I take care of myself, take care of my family, make sure I got things established? We quickly rely upon our own resources. We run to Egypt. Or we run to Moab. Instead of running to the Lord. And if the Lord then sends me to Egypt, well, I'll go to Egypt. If the Lord sends me to Moab, I'll go to Moab. Jacob found himself in a famine. And you know what the Lord said to him? Go to Egypt. I've already prepared something for you there. And there was his son Joseph waiting for him with plenty and a land to provide for him. And But the Lord told Jacob, you go there. You go there. In other times, when the people of God have fled on their own, Abraham decides it's a good idea to run down to Egypt himself. It does not end well. But this is our instinct. Our natures are to do these kinds of things, to run to Egypt, to look for help. I, I think of the passage in James, and we've read it many times in here. Oh, you, you, you moron. You, you say, I'm going to go down to the, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go down to the city, buy and sell for a little bit, make some money, and come back here in a few years and settle back in. And he says, you're a moron. You're a fool. Your life's a vapor, you know. You might better say, if the Lord wills, I will do this and I will do that. Not because you have to say certain things in order to make things work out well, but the point is, the Lord's will is not even on your mind on this. Here, Elimelech just decides, my God is king, but he acts as if there's no king in the land, and there's no king. his God is not king. And so he decides the best thing to do is to take his family out of the house of bread, out of the holy land where God is his God and where God provides for his people, even if that provision is chastisement, to take himself out of there and go to the land of the Moabites, the Moabites of all people, who when the people of Israel were in their exodus and came to the Moabites and asked them for bread, the Moabites said no. And in the first cycle of the judges, it's their king, King Eglon, who comes and tyrannizes the people. And it's their God who demands child sacrifice. Chemosh, Chemosh. And Elimelech decides better to go there. And to make matters worse, he's got two sons who don't have wives and who are coming into the time when they're going to be married. And so on multiple levels, we've got, you're taking your sons away from the only source of faithful marriage for them, which is there in Israel, in the Holy Land. All these things, I guess, work into the calculus of Elimelech or not. And he decides we're not told whether Naomi has any say in this, but all we're told is off they go. And so we have a horrible decision. And we ought to learn from this decision. 
we ought to learn about running to the Egyptians or running to the Moabites. You know, it's interesting. We read Second uh, Corinthians. I think about one little way in which Paul deals with this to the Corinthians and First Corinthians when he talks about bringing lawsuits against one another, you know. And it's interesting if you listen to that, he kind of does a similar thing, right? Hey, why are you bringing lawsuits to one another? Why are you asking some pagan judge to decide something between the two of you when you have elders in your church? When you have the Holy Spirit? Why are you running to the Moabites to solve this problem? And running out of the land that God has given you? That's just a little example of, of, of Paul kind of taking that same thing and saying, hey, why are you doing this? So we've got, we understand the context. We understand the terrible decision that Elimelech makes here. Now quickly consider the bitter providence. It begins, you know, the, the, the author of the book of Ruth is very economical in the way that he writes. Just gets right to it. I mean, we're right here and it's, they go down and Elimelech died. Now, there's no interpretive explanation. You say, and the Lord killed him. It's not like when, when we have that with, you know, uh, uh, certain times, you know, where, where things happen and it just says, and the Lord struck them. We don't have that, but we are kind of left to deal with it that the guy decides to take his family out of there rather than acknowledging my God is king. And he gets down there and he, he dies as soon as he gets down there, at least as far as we know. We're not told time references. Okay, now this presents a very interesting scenario because now Naomi has a decision to make. Does Naomi stay or does Naomi go back to the house of bread? What does she do? Now Elimelech's not there. She's got to make the decisions. And what does she do? She stays. And now in this case, the decision is on her, whether or not it was with her when Elimelech came, but now she's making the decisions and her decision is to stay and the consequences are rough because her sons now, of course, marry Moabite women. Again, her sons are at the point of marriage. She needs to be thinking, is this where I want to be? Is this the best place for us to be? I have no family here. Well, she stays. And the two sons take wives of the Moabites. One is named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they stayed there for 10 years. So they stay. They settle in. So the bad decisions continue. Rather than saying, I'm going back to the house of bread, they decide to stay among the Moabites. And the bitter providences continue. For we're told that these two boys marry these uh, Moabite women, and then they die. And again, we're not given any interpretation of it. It's just put there for us to contemplate. Elimelech moves the family down there. They get down there. He dies. The two boys marry these Moabite women. They die. And now Naomi finds herself in an unbelievably miserable. It was miserable before. You lose your husband. You've lost your home. You're in a foreign land. You have no connections, no contacts, but your husband thought this was better for you. And now he's gone. And now you're with the two boys. They get married. Now they die. You've lost your home. You've lost your husband. You've lost your two boys. And not only have you lost them, you gained two daughters-in-law from the Moabites. And now what do I do with them? 
So Naomi has found herself in an unbelievably bad situation. And all we know is that the time will come when she decides it's time to go home. We don't get there yet because we're just left with we're just left with the darkness here. And they dwelt there ten years. Then both Malon and Killian also died. And so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. This little pericope, this little, this little section of the story just ends in despair. We read the whole first chapter for our Old Testament reading, so we we kind of it, this chapter ends, if you caught it, on a beautiful height, like a beautiful turn. It's like things are, things are pretty bad, even when she comes back, as we'll think about next week. Like, what hope does she have? She has nothing, and she's got a clinger, or she's got Ruth with her, which is really nice because Ruth is awesome, but from Naomi's perspective, it's a mouth to feed. It's another person. I'm going to have to seek charity, and now I'm going to have to seek charity for two. That's even worse. And she's a Moabite woman, which is embarrassing because it's just another. I'm dragging a Moabite woman back with me, which is just a sign of what we did when we were down there. And this whole thing is a disaster. And so even through the first chapter, as we'll look at next week, kind of negative. And then it, the, the chapter ends with, it was the beginning of barley harvest. And it's like there's this little... In all, in all the darkness, there's this little flicker of light, like harvest? <laughs> yeah, harvest? It's been, all we've been talking about is famine and darkness and death and emptiness and loss. But we're at the beginning of a harvest. And so there's little sign of what's to come. But indeed, Naomi is dealing with bitter providences. Now, the text leaves us there, but I don't want to leave us there because it's it's heavy, it's it's dark. But we we know we can we can weave together what we read in our New Testament, you know. And and our New Testament reading was so familiar that back end section of Romans eight, it can you know, as I say it becomes like Hallmark card stuff. It becomes like refrigerator magnet verses, you know, about all things working together for good. And certainly Naomi cannot it's impossible for her to see this in the midst of the darkness that she's found herself in some of her own doing some of her family's doing some of just god's mysterious hand upon her because i have no doubt that there were others who also left the land who didn't endure these kind of bitter providences but this is what has come upon naomi and yet and yet because we know where this story goes, and then it ultimately circles us all the way back. While she's going to head back to Bethlehem, we know the story beyond her circles all the way back to Bethlehem through this very situation. Because of that clinger that's going to come with her, even though she tries to push her off, as you heard, and we'll, again, we'll deal with this next week. But because of that Moabite clinging woman, Jesus comes. Jesus comes because of her. Back in Bethlehem, the king is born in the land because of this woman. Now, Naomi, this is so, this is why I say you can't do the math. There's just not, not any conceivable way in which Naomi could sit back for a moment, just contemplate what's happening to her and, and the misery and the bad decisions and the darkness and the loss and the famine and the judges and the Holy Land and just kind of put it together and say, well, perhaps, 
perhaps the Lord is going to bring a Messiah through, you know, through this. It's, it's, it's not even conceivable to see what the Lord is doing. But that's why stories like this are in the Bible for us. Because they remind us that when we're in the midst of the trouble, even some of our own doing, and when we're in the darkness, and when we're in the midst of the, the, the sorrows, you know then, because of stories like this, that you can't do the math. You're not going to be able to contemplate your way out of this. You're not going to be able to contemplate yourself to peace. Stories like this remind us simply to trust. To trust that there's a God at work even through your terrible, terrible decisions. And again, we only need to think back to the story of Joseph to, to remind us of this. The horrible decisions of Joseph's brothers. Horrible. You talk about bad decisions. These are the all-time greats of the bad decisions to sell your brother into slavery you know, and lie to your father. And yet, that horrible decision was used by the Lord to bring deliverance to them, of all people, and to their children, and to their father, as Joseph found himself at the right hand of Pharaoh. You can't do the math. You can't work out, you can't draw the lines between these acts of God. And so stories like this remind us to trust him in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our trouble. Now, it doesn't say, it does not teach us to go ahead and make bad decisions because it doesn't matter because the Lord will work it out anyway. Decisions have consequences. And the consequences here were very stiff and stark for Naomi. And she had been dealt a bitter hand and she knew it. She doesn't try to explain it any other way. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She's not, she's, she knows that the Lord's hand is at work in her life. She's in doing the interpretation, not the author. So we must, we, we must prayerfully make good decisions and seek to honor the Lord. But we must never go back to some kind of self-reliance, like what if I make the wrong decision? Our, our trust is in the Lord who governs all things as he governs the life of Naomi through Ruth to David to Jesus and to us. So we look forward to that as we read through the rest of the book. I encourage you to read it, be familiar with the story, but, but as we do, we will contemplate the glories of God's rich providence uh, to us through his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are no different than Israel. Their cycle that they go through in the judges is a cycle that we go through in our own hearts. Father, uh, we, we are unable to hold the line of obedience and hold the line of trust uh, and honoring you. But we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you sustain us. We thank you that you will not abandon us, but that your providential hand will work all things for our good, even through our bad decisions. Guard us from bad decisions. Guard us from self-reliance. Guard us from saying our God is king and then acting as if there is no king and doing what is right in our own eyes. Guard us from living in ways that are utterly inconsistent with the name we bear as Christians, as children of God Almighty. Father, guard us from running to Egypt to solve our problems. Guard us from running to Moab to find our sustenance. But pray that you would help us to rely upon you 
to bow our knees, to confess our sins, to repent where we need to repent, to trust in you to sustain us. For you landed us in the house of bread. It's the house that you built. You will provide. You will sustain. Help us to trust in you, we pray. Father, we ask all this in Christ's name.